We are looking today at the idea of faith, and as we're talking about faith, we're looking about an evolution of faith, and as we think about that evolution of faith, I want to ask you all, have you all ever found yourselves in one of these patterns in your life? where you try to do something, you don't succeed, you learn from your mistake, and you set out to do it again, thinking, well, I know where I messed up, I know where I went wrong, I know where this plan went awry, so I'm going to fix it this go-round. I'm going to make sure this go-round, I don't fall into the same trap, I don't make the same mistake, I've learned from that, and it's going to be better this time. So you set out with determination and you go ahead and do whatever this thing is again only to find that maybe you fell into the same trap or you made the same mistake or maybe you find that you fell into the same trap a different way. You ended up with the same result. You found yourself in the same predicament. And so there's a disbelief that you could do that. You know you're not that dumb. You know you're not that inept. You know you've done this before. You know you should be able to do this. You've watched enough YouTube videos. They make it look easy. You should be able to master whatever this is, right? So there's this sense of determination that comes again, only to try and find defeat. And then we drudge up that determination again, only to find defeat. And somewhere in this cycle, we wind up running the gamut of determination, defeat, and somewhere in there, there's depression and everything else that goes along with it. Because we can't accomplish whatever it is. We just find ourselves fighting the same battle over and over and over and over again with no result. And you know what they say? When you find yourself doing the same thing, expecting a different result every time, that's a sign of what? You're a man, right? No, no, it's a sign of insanity, right? So we find ourselves, we're not crazy, so what do we do? We give up. We give up, and we just accept the defeat, forget the determination, and we wallow in the depression of not being able to do whatever it is that we were doing, or at least we were attempting to do. And that's kind of where we find the nation of Israel in the book of Judges. So go ahead and turn with me to the book of Judges in chapter 6 today. And we're looking at this cycle that the nation of Israel keeps repeating over and over and over and over again. They forget God. They forget His blessings in their life. They find themselves oppressed under God's judgment. Only to call out to God when they realize that He must be the answer. To have Him send a deliverer. They do okay during the life of that deliverer, that judge that God has sent them. But once he dies, what happens to the next generation? They tend to forget God again. And they just find themselves repeating this cycle over and over and over again. That cycle is much the same and slightly different as we find ourselves in chapter 6 this morning. It says in verse 1, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Who did the evil? The people of Israel, God's people. God's people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Who did the giving? God. God. This wasn't that God was inept. This wasn't that God couldn't keep it from happening. This wasn't that someone did something that was contrary to the plan of God and he couldn't stop it. No, Israel found themselves in the predicament they were in because God had put them there. They found themselves facing the circumstances that they were facing because of choices that they had made. Only they didn't see it that way. They didn't see it that way. It's like they could not grasp, they could not understand how they found themselves facing what they were facing again. 
And so Israel was brought very low because of Midian. Now, if you begin reading verses 2 through 5, you'll see exactly what it was that was happening and how Israel was brought low. Midian was a, a close neighbor. In fact, they were somewhat distant relatives of the Israelites. If you think through your mind, if you go through your Old Testament studies and reading from before, you should come up with the name Midian or Midianite a few different times. If you remember Abraham, after his wife Sarah died, he took for himself another wife by the name of Keturah. She had a child. The Midianites were descendants of Abraham and Keturah. They were half-brothers of the Israelites. You flash forward a little bit to the book of Exodus, you'll remember whenever Moses left Egypt and he went wandering in the desert, he found himself keeping sheep for a priest of the Midianites. In fact, his wife was this man's daughter. And after they've come out of Egypt, before they start their wilderness wanderings, if you remember, he has an encounter with his father-in-law, where his father-in-law gave him great wisdom and told him this people was too great for him to judge over all day long. He needed to appoint people to govern over smaller groups of the people and only bring the big cases to him. These were the Midianites. But these same Midianites now, hundreds of years later, are coming across the Jordan River once a year. They're letting Israel, in the springtime, get the fields ready, plow the fields up and plant their seed. They're letting Israel tend the gardens all spring and all summer, pulling out the weeds, keeping out the rodents, keeping away the birds, until the harvest is about ready to be picked. And then the Midianites come by the thousands across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And they set up camp. And they go out on their camels by day, who don't require much water and can go 20 plus miles a day. They go out on their camels a day and take all that they can find. They steal the crops. They steal the livestock. They take everything in the fields that they can find and bring it back to their base camp for them and leave nothing for the Israelites. In fact, it says they're like a plague of locusts because as they come across the Jordan and begin to move across the Promised Land, moving their base camp from one place to the next, it says the fields and the ground behind them are just laid complete waste. There is nothing left for the Israelites. And the Israelites are so afraid of these people, and they're so tired of going through this year in and year out. It says every year whenever they see the Midianites coming, they, take, they leave their villages, they leave their homes, they leave their farms, and they go and they take refuge and shelter in the holes and the caves and the strong places on the hills. They're not even putting up a fight anymore. And the Midianites leave nothing for them when they're done. So Israel has been brought low. And notice what it says, the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Maybe they're getting it, right? Maybe they're getting it, but no, they're not. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites. You see, Israel did not understand, they did not get that the reason they were in the situation they were in was because of their choices, because they had abandoned God. They didn't call out to God in repentance. They didn't call out to God because of their sin. They didn't call out to God seeking forgiveness and seeking relationship to be restored with Him again. No, they called out because of their circumstances and the pain and the suffering that they were in. And just like every time we get around this cycle in the book of Judges, God sends a judge, right? That's what it says. No, this time is a little bit different. 
Instead of sending a deliverer, it says the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And notice what this prophet says. I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I've delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. God is recounting for them all of the things that he's done for them, all of the blessings, all of his mercies and his grace that he's poured out on them. He's taking them all the way back in their history as far as they can remember and recounting for them how he has provided for them everything that they know and enjoy. And he said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Not only did he give them all of what they know and all of what they enjoy, he gave them one thing when they came into this land that they were not to do, and that is not to bow down and worship the gods of the people in the land with whom he gave them. But notice what he says, you have not obeyed my voice. He points out to them the blessings that he's given them. He points out to them the one command, his law, that thing that he wanted them to do. And he points out their sin. He says, you're crying out to me because of the situation in which you find yourself. But you're not crying out to me because of your sin. That's what you need to be crying out to me about. Because that is the root of the problem. But what do you find? There's no repentance. There's no remorse. The light never goes on. Israel never says, you know what, God, you're right and we're sorry. They never say we're going to tear down the altars. They never say we're going to get rid of the Asherah poles. They never say we're going to stop sacrificing to these false gods. They simply hear the word of the prophet and nothing changes. And yet we find ourselves here in the book of Judges, God acting out of mercy God pouring out grace that the Israelites certainly did not deserve. Because back in Genesis chapter 3, God made a promise to fallen man. That there would be the seed of a woman. He makes a promise to Abraham that it was going to come through his descendants. He makes a promise to Judah that it would be through his family. That the Savior... This Messiah would come, this one who would be able to reconcile sinful man back to a perfect and holy God. And it's according to God's plan and God's covenant that this is going to happen. And despite Israel's sin, despite the place where Israel finds themselves, despite their lack of repentance, God knows that if he continues to let them go, there goes the plan. And so God steps in in chapter 6. And though Israel did not ask for it, though Israel did not deserve it, God sends them a deliverer. So today we find ourselves looking at Gideon, his evolution of faith, because Gideon certainly was not who you think of as a mighty warrior, a mighty man of God. We're going to see in just a moment when God finds him, he looks nothing like the Gideon that we hear about in our Sunday school classes, the Gideon that we learned about at Vacation Bible School. He looks nothing like this man who's accounted in Hebrews in the Hall of Fame. In fact, Gideon's faith took a very long journey in a very short amount of time because God had a big plan for him. And something that he needed to accomplish. In order to keep his plan for our salvation on track. So let's begin by looking at Gideon this morning. 
as we see his faith and the kind of journey that it took. As Gideon began and as we first encounter him, Gideon has a forsaken faith. A forsaken faith. And notice these different types of faith and these different progressions that are made throughout his life. Because we find ourselves, we find our faith somewhere in this path. We find our faith somewhere in this journey. And as we look at each of these stops today, we're going to see the way God dealt with them there. The lessons that needed to be learned. Those characteristics that signify this type of faith. And we want to ask ourselves this morning together, where are we in this journey? Where is our faith? What type of faith do we have? Because when we first encounter Gideon, he has this forsaken faith. Look at this exchange. It says, The angel of the Lord came and said under the terebinth and Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now understand in this day, you would not be threshing wheat in a winepress. Instead, you would be on the threshing floor, up on top of a hill. Because the way this worked is when you brought in the wheat, you threw it down on the threshing floor and you would beat it to break open the hull of the chaff and everything that was there so that this kernel would be exposed. But then in order to separate it, you didn't send the kids in and let them pick kernel by kernel the wheat out of all the stuff on the floor. No, what you did was you took your fork and you would take that wheat, you threw it up into the air, and as the wind came across that hilltop, it would carry all of the loose stuff away and let the heavier kernels of wheat fall back to the ground, separating it for you. But remember, Gideon can't do that because the Midianites are sitting and waiting and watching. They're looking for the harvest to come in. They want to steal everything that he's done. And in fact, the way these guys operated, they probably let Gideon get it all done and then come in and take the finished product. So Gideon instead is hiding down in the wine press where he's got cover on all sides. And he's using the base of the wine press as his threshing floor. And instead of being up on the hill where this wind could carry it away and he had a nice breeze, he's taking this stuff up and tossing it just barely higher than the wine press, hoping that there's enough that will carry it out. Because he's determined to get some wheat. He's determined to get this grain. He's determined to be able to provide for himself and his family. But he's cowering in this wine press, doing his day-to-day task. And look at what the angel of the Lord says. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor who's hiding from the enemy in a hole. Sounds like a mighty man of valor, doesn't it? But you see, God doesn't look at where we are and how we are. He doesn't see us the way we see ourselves. Instead, God sees us. He sees the heart that he created. He sees the potential that he placed there. And he sees the work that he created us to do. He knows who Gideon can be in faith. And so in faith and in light of that faith, he calls Gideon a mighty man of valor. And notice what he says. Gideon looks at him and says, "Uh, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, like you've just said, then why has all this happened to us? Why, Why do I find myself threshing wheat in a wine press, hiding from the enemy? He says, and where are all these wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Whenever they used to tell us these stories and say, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? Didn't he part the Red Sea and let our ancestors go across on dry land? Didn't he bring the Red Sea back over to cover up Pharaoh and his army? 
Didn't he bring us water from a rock? Didn't he give us manna and quail as we went through the promised land? Didn't he hold back the waters of the Jordan as Joshua and the children of Israel came across? Isn't it the same God who brought down the walls of Jericho and allowed this conquering? But now the Lord's forsaken us. Where's he at? Where's this God who did all these things? Where's this God that we heard about? Where's all this power? He's forsaken us and he's given us into the hand of the enemy. I'm not discounting that there is a God. I'm not saying that he's not powerful. I'm not saying that he hasn't done stuff before, but but where is he now? And you see, this forsaken faith is typified by a couple of things. One, it has a historical knowledge of God. We're the same way. And this is the kind of faith that we run into a lot here. This is the kind of faith that many of your coworkers have. This is the kind of faith that maybe some of your relatives have. This is the kind of faith that maybe some of you in this room have today. This is the kind of faith that we find all throughout the mountains of Appalachia, where I am not discounting at all what this book says. In fact, I'll tell you, I believe every word of it. It happened exactly like God said it happened. Jonah got swallowed by a big fish. Jesus rose out of the grave on the third day. I'm not discounting any of that. He multiplied the fish and the bread. He fed 5,000. It's all true. I understand it all. I have a knowledge of all of that. But there's no personal experience with God. You see, while that was true here, and while that was true for the people in this book, and while my grandparents have told some stories about the way God worked in their lives and delivered them from some things and provided for them in certain ways, where's that in my life? I've never experienced that. I've never seen that. While he was real to them and and their faith was vibrant and real, mine never has been. That's not been my story. That's not been my experience. And so while I'm not going to hold it against you that you're a person of faith, it's it's just not my thing. And so they go along making it without God, which is what we find Gideon doing here. He's threshing wheat in the wine press instead of up on the hill where he should be. You know what? It's not the most effective way, and he knows that. It doesn't work as well as other things could, and he knows that. But you know what? Right now, it's the situation he's in, and it's what he's got, so he's making the best with what he has. How many people do you talk to when you ask them how things are going, their response is, I'm making it. In other words, I know it's not what it could be. It's probably more. It could probably be a lot better, but you know what? I'm making it. So I don't really need God right now. You know, my marriage isn't perfect, but it's pretty good. It's not like most of my other friends. We're not looking at divorce. She's not making me sleep on the couch. Things are pretty good right now. We're making it. You know, the kids right now are doing pretty good in school. They're not in too much trouble. Had a little detention the other day, but, you know, he hadn't been arrested yet or anything. We're making it. And because we're making it, we don't really need God. We don't really need God. We live in this place of practical atheism where, yes, maybe I believe that there's a God out there and, yes, maybe I believe he has power, but you know what? I've never seen it and I don't really need it. I'm getting along just fine without him. And that's where we find Gideon with this forsaken faith. And he's asking this question, this genuine, heartfelt question. Where is God and what has he done for me? Where's God and what has he done for me? Are you there today? 
Maybe you believe it. Maybe you're not going to argue with me at all. Everything in this book happened exactly the way it says it did. You're fine with that. It just doesn't make any difference to you. Well, how did God deal with that with Gideon? How does he want to deal with that with you today? Well, he wants to fix his focus. Notice how God responds. It says, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? He's acknowledging the situation that Gideon finds himself in, but he's telling him, look, it's time for things to change. It's time for something different to happen. It's time for you to start doing what I created you to do. Now, go in this might of yours that I gave you, right? But that's what Gideon didn't understand. Go in this might of yours that I gave you. Do I not send you? I've called you and I've commissioned you. Your life is mine. Your life has purpose that I have given it. So it's time now to go and do. You see, even though God's trying to fix his focus on him, Gideon still doesn't get it. Look at where his mind goes to. He says to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? My family's a lowly family in the tribe, and my tribe's not an important family in Israel, and I'm the least in my father's house. How can I save Israel? See, God's trying to fix his focus, but Gideon doesn't quite get it yet. So the Lord has to step in. Notice what he says. But I will be with you. You don't get it. I know who you are. I know who your family is. I know what you have. I know all of your strengths and I know all of your shortcomings. But Gideon, you're not getting it. I will be with you. There's the difference maker. Gideon, that's what you need to focus on. And in fixing his focus, we see Gideon's faith begin to change. We, we see something start to change, but, it, but it's not there yet. Because we find Gideon now finding his faith again. This forsaken faith, this seed of faith that was planted in there by his grandparents and his great-grandparents and all of these stories that he heard, all of these vacation Bible schools he went to, all of those few times that he went to church and heard the word preached, all of these little stories that his grandparents used to tell him, they're all starting to come back to him now. And he's sifting through those things and he's culling through the truths that are there and he's finding faith. And he says, you know what, if this guy is a messenger, if this really is the Lord... I am not going to let him leave until I present to him an offering. And my offering can't just be any old thing. It's going to cost me something. So look at what he says. He says, if I found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it's you who speaks with me. In other words, God, if this is truly a messenger, he's he's looking past the messenger now. He's looking past the form that is there. He's saying, God, if this truly is you who's bringing me this word... He says, don't depart from here until I come to you and bring my present and set it before you. And the Lord says, I'll wait. So Gideon goes back to the house and he prepares the meat and he prepares the broth. And he takes more than half a bushel of wheat, which is not easy to come by now. And he prepares a cake out of it and he brings it all back. Now understand, he didn't go pop this in the microwave. This isn't a three-minute TV dinner or something like that, okay? He's gone. He's fixing this, and the Lord says, I'll wait. And Gideon comes back, and he sets it on a rock there before this messenger. 
And it says he reaches out with his staff and touches the rock, and fire comes out of the rock and consumes the offering, and then he disappears. So Gideon's right in who he thinks this might be that's talking to him. And he's starting to go back to these things, these truths that he knew, these little seeds that him had planted all along years ago, and he's starting to find this faith. And so Gideon perceives that this is an angel of the Lord. And he remembers one of these seeds, one of the things he remembers is no man can see the Lord face to face and survive. And Gideon is afraid for his life, but what he doesn't get is God is not going to kill him because God had just given him a mission. But he's scared to death now because of this little seed, this little piece that he knows. And he says, God, I'm going to die now. And God assures him, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. And he names this place, the Lord is peace. And notice how the Bible gives us this little detail, this little nugget. At the time of this writing, the writer was saying, and you can go check it out yourself because it's still there to this day. See, the Word of God's grounded in history. It's not just made up stuff. And he challenges us to make sure. But he tells Gideon, I'm not going to kill you. You've got a job to do. You've got a job to do. And so he gives him a little test. You see, God knows us better than we know ourselves. And God is patient. Maybe you find yourself at this place where your faith has been forsaken and you're trying to find this faith within yourself. Maybe that's where you are today and you genuinely want to find this faith again. You genuinely want to follow God. But you've been in this place where you just don't see God in your life. You don't see him working. Now you're ashamed, you're embarrassed. Maybe you used to have a faith that was strong and now it's nothing. You've been living practically as an atheist for years now, and you're just embarrassed to come back to God. God is patient with us. See, he was patient with Gideon. God knows that we're a work in progress because we're his work. We're his work. And while God calls us to perfection, he doesn't expect that we're already there. He didn't pick Gideon because Gideon was perfect. Gideon had forsaken faith. And yet God still chose him because all he does expect is that will let us or let him work in us. That's what his expectation is. And he says, Gideon, if you're willing to do that, man, I've got a mission for you. And so he gives him this test. Faith test number one. You ready? Faith begins at home. Faith begins at home. God didn't call him to go out and do some big thing. God didn't call him straight to the battlefield. God didn't call him to go and command the armies that night. No, because he had to take Gideon on this faith journey from a forsaken faith to where he could actually use him. But he gives him this test. Gideon's like, all right, God, I'm game. You said you'll be with me. What do you need me to do? And so here toward the end of chapter 6, God tells him exactly what it is that he's going to do. And then he goes on in 7 and gives him all the details, right? He says, take your father's young bull and a second bull that's seven years old. And tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord on that mound that's left. Take the second bull, the one that's seven years old. By the way, how long have they been in oppression of Midian? So that may say seven years. Significance there? I think so. Take that second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down as fuel. 
Gideon's father was not just a Baal worshiper, but the altar to Baal was in Gideon's backyard. God says, I know exactly where you're coming from. And faith begins at home. If you're not going to take a stand in your home, if you're not going to take a stand with your friends and your family, if you're not going to take a stand in your church, you're not going to take a stand for me anywhere. So Gideon, here's your first test. I want you to go home. I want you to tear down this pagan altar. I want you to build an altar there on the spot for me. I want you to use the remnants of that altar as fuel for your fire. And I want you to take that sacred bull and sacrifice him to me. God's putting him to the test. How does Gideon respond? Well, he responds with some fearful faith. It says, Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. He did it by night. And we find out Gideon's fears were legit. They were legit. But there's the question, what do we have to fear? When God is with us and God is in control, what do we have to fear? See, Gideon had moved from his forsaken faith. He's finding this baby faith, right, that he's got. And, and it's there, but it's still, it's still a fearful faith. What do we mean by a fearful faith? Well, let's look at it. A fearful faith is one that does partial obedience. Partial obedience. Gideon did what God told him to do. Only Gideon was trying to do it in secret. Gideon didn't want anybody to know that it was him who had done it. See, for him, God was asking him to tear down the altar because it was a pagan altar and it just needed to come down. God had bigger plans and intended more. But you see, in fearful faith, we find it compromised with comfort. Our comfort. See, Gideon was willing to tear down the altar. But he wanted to do it at night. God calls us out of the box. He wants us to minister to this person in this way. Well, God, I'll minister to them, but I really think it'd be easier if I did it like this. God, I know you're calling me to participate in this ministry or do this thing or serve here. It takes up a whole lot of time. So instead of taking the position that you're calling me to, I'll help that ministry out. But I really only want to give this much time. And see, we compromise our obedience with our own comfort. Because we're afraid of what it's going to cost us. We're afraid of what someone will going to say. We're afraid of what we'll have to sacrifice in order to do it the way that God is calling us to do it. And while we want to follow God and while we want to serve and while we want to be obedient, we have to be obedient on our terms because we can't fully trust His yet. And we're living with this fearful kind of faith. So how does his father respond? Well, the men of the city wake up the next morning and they find the altar's been tore down and they start pounding on Joash's door. They've discovered that it was Gideon who's torn it down and they want him brought out to them so they can kill him. They're ready to exercise capital punishment for tearing down this altar to Baal. And the irony of the situation is, as children of Israel, idolatry was punishable by death according to their law. 
And yet they're wanting to kill Gideon for tearing down their pagan altar. So Joash comes to the door, and we don't know why he responded this way. We don't know if it was just because Gideon was his son. We, we don't know if it's because he realized, you know what, if Baal's really a god, then uh, he can take care of his own, and if he can't take care of his own, he's not a god worthy of worship. We don't know. We don't know his reasoning behind it, but notice what he does. He tells the men of the city, if he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar's been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbabel. That means, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. You see what God just did there through his father? Fickle as he was, he took what Gideon wanted to do in obedience in private, and not only did he make it public and known, but he changed Gideon's name to reflect this act of obedience. This obedience that Gideon was willing to give God, but in private, out of fear, God took and made his moniker. He made it what people knew him as and knew him by. He couldn't outrun it anymore. He couldn't hide it anymore. He couldn't be fearful of it anymore. It was out there. It was in the open. And now that's how people knew him. You see, God is calling him out of that fear and saying, this thing that you were so afraid of, this thing that you didn't want anybody to find out, this thing that I placed in your life, that I put there for me and my glory and my kingdom, that's exactly what you're going to be known by. And it's going to be out there, and it's going to be public for everyone to see, because that's where he wants our faith lived. He doesn't want it in the shadows. He doesn't want it private. He doesn't want us skulking around in fear, doing things for him secretly, hoping nobody will find out, and that it will cost us something. He said, Gideon, if you're going to have faith in me, if you're going to live for me, if you're going to obey me, it's going to cost you everything. So here, everyone's going to know, are you still willing to obey and follow? God's moving him along in this progression, this evolution of his faith. So he goes from this fearful faith to a fractured kind of faith. You see, now it's the time of year for the Midianites to start amassing their raiding parties and crossing the Jordan. It's time for them to come over and make their camp in the valley of Jezreel, and they're going to start ravaging the land and stealing all the crops. It's time for Gideon to do something. His obedience, his faith is now public, so he goes and he sounds the trumpet call. The war cry. And all of his tribe assembles. And the call goes out and three other tribes assemble with them. In all, 32,000 Soldiers now ready to go out and follow God onto the battlefield behind Gideon. God has guaranteed victory. God has said he's delivering Midian into their hands. But Gideon looks out and sees 135,000 Midianites amassed in the valley. And he looks behind him and sees 32,000 faithful Israelite soldiers. And he knows God has promised that he'd be there. He knows that God has made good on some confirmations of his faith before. But Gideon's faith is fractured. 
Notice what he does in chapter 6, verse 36. He says, if you'll save Israel by my hand, as you've said. God, I know you said it. I'm just struggling with this. If you're going to save Israel by my hand, like you said, behold, I'm laying out a fleece of wool. And if there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, then I'll know that you'll save Israel, just like you said. And so what does God do? Gideon wakes up in the morning. The ground is dry. He picks up the fleece and it says he wrings out an entire bowl of water. But you know what? That kind of makes sense. Because that threshing floor may or may not even cause any condensation. And if it does, by first light of day, it's going to dry pretty quick. But you know what? That fleece is going to hold water. Maybe that's just a coincidence. So what does Gideon do? He goes back to God and he says, Let not your anger burn against me. Why would he even have to preface this statement with that if he didn't know what he was about to do was wrong already? Did your kids ever do that? They come to you, don't kill me, but. And that's what, that's what Gideon's doing to God. Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just, just once more. Please let me just test once more with the fleece. Only this time I want you to do the opposite. When we get up in the morning, I want the fleece to be dry and the ground around it to be completely wet. Then I'll know. Because that will really be a miracle. So what does God do? Well, he condescends to Gideon. He stoops to where Gideon's faith is. And he answers. Because he understands Gideon has this fractured faith. What, What is a fractured faith? This fractured faith comes from a low view of God and an exaggerated view of the enemy. Gideon did not have enough personal experience. He did not have enough trust. He did not have enough time alone with. He didn't have enough God. And so he knew what God was capable of. He knew what God had done before. He just didn't know it really for himself. He he knew God had addressed other smaller things. He knew God had gotten him through the incident with his father and the men at the town and the altar there. But this is even bigger. And it's not just Gideon's life anymore. There's 32,000 men now who are getting ready to go into battle with him only on the promise that Gideon says God has promised a victory. But he's got an exaggerated view of the enemy. There's 135,000 of them. So they're outnumbered. But if you start to read the description here, how do they appear to Gideon? Innumerable. Camels as many as the sands of the sea. Now I know given enough time you could count to 135,000. But the sands of the sea? Gideon's view of the enemy is a little bit exaggerated. And his view of God doesn't quite match up yet. And so God condescends. And he does for Gideon exactly what he asked him to do. But by the way, it's, it's not good practice. When we're trying to determine God's will and if God is really in something, putting out the fleece is really not good practice and it's not the way to do it. But we can't be too critical of Gideon in doing so because we're just like him. Only most of the time we don't even lay out a fleece because we don't consider his will at all. When we try to make a decision or we're trying to do something in our life or we get some harebrained idea in our head, instead of even going to God and seeing what his will is and how he wants us to respond and what he wants us to do, we just go ahead and jump in and do it. 
We don't even check with God. And here's Gideon, we're being critical of him by trying to be doubly certain that what he's about to do is God's will. That we couldn't just take him at face value, which is really what we should be doing. We also ask for coincidences when we try the same thing instead of miracles. Think about what Gideon was doing. He was asking God to do something miraculous. Most of the time, we're asking God for a coincidence. God, if you really want me to witness to this person, then whenever I show up at work 15 minutes early, they'll be standing in my cubicle waiting already. And you know this person is perennially late, and they're never going to be 15 minutes early to anything in their life. So you're off the hook, right? But you're asking God for a coincidence. He's asking God for a miracle. But fleecing is not good practice. And most of the time, we don't ask or act. We know what God is wanting us to do. We know what his will is. But we're afraid to ask him because we're afraid he'll say yes. And we don't want to act. So we sit there until God forces the issue or God forces the situation. He basically has to dynamite us out of our little comfort zone to get us to do what it is that he wants us to do. So let's not be too critical too quickly of Gideon for laying out the fleece. But understand, that's not good practice. It's a sign of a fractured faith. It's a sign of a faith that doesn't have a high enough view of God and that exaggerates the position of the enemy. When We need to remember and keep in mind in our lives who created the enemy. Who is the king of kings? Who has given the enemy any authority that he has and can take it back at a moment's notice? That's the God we serve, and that's the God that's calling us to follow him. So God gives Gideon another test of his faith. He's moving him from this fractured faith, trying to get him ready to go into battle, trying to get him ready to do the thing that he's created him and called him to do. And so he tests his faith in the field. He tests his faith in the field. He says, Gideon, the 32,000 have assembled. But, but, notice what he says. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hands have saved me. God says the whole point of this exercise is so that you will lead Israel back to me. Lead them from forsaking me and living as practical atheists back into depending on me day in and day out and following me faithfully. He says, if I deliver these 135,000 into the hands of the 32,000, they're going to get the big head and think they did it on their own. There's too many of them. And Gideon, you've got to trust me on this. He says, go before the 32,000 and tell any of them that are afraid to go into the battle to go home. 22,000 left that day. And then God says, the 10,000 you have are still too many. Take them all down to the brook to get something to drink. God, I'm going to show you which ones you're going to battle with. So the Lord said to Gideon, the 300 men who lapped up water, in other words, they didn't get down on all fours and stick their face right in. They got down and scooped it up and lapped it out of their hand like a dog. He says, those are the men that you're going to keep. Those are the 300 you're going to keep. He says, let the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And notice what Gideon does. He sends the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retains only 300. See, Gideon's faith is finally functional. 
It's finally a functional faith. It's finally a faith that God can use to accomplish what he's intended to accomplish. What does a functional faith look like? It's obedience. It's not questioning. Never once in this exchange did Gideon ask God, are you sure? Can you give me a sign? Can you make a promise? How do I know that this is really going to work? He never questions God's logic. He never questions God's plan. He's ready to simply obey. And there are no compromises. It doesn't say, okay, God, I'll go into the battle with these 300. If you give us a Sherman tank, we'll go. I know a buddy that's got one. I'll just go get it. No, there's no compromises. He's not doing it in his comfort and what he's comfortable with. He's doing it exactly according to what God has said. That's functional faith. And he's focused on the promise maker. Notice he's no longer looking. He never once mentions again the size of the enemy's army. Never mentions it again. He never even questions the 300 number. He's just simply focused on what God is saying, the promise maker, and the fact that he is able to keep his promises. See, it's a functional faith. It's a functional faith. But our journey's not done. You see, God is fomenting this faith still. He's stirring it up. He's agitating. He's exciting it within Gideon. And he's ready. Tonight is the night. And notice what he tells him. Same night, the Lord said to him, arise, go down against the camp. In other words, go into battle. Tonight is the night. Tonight is the night that you go, execute it all. I'm giving you the victory that I promised. But he sees into Gideon's heart. It's a functional faith. But have have you all ever been to that point where you're on the high dive and you're ready to go? You know you can do it. You want to do it. Everybody's watching you. They're waiting for you to do it. You've done it before, just not this summer. You're up there for the first time this year. There are people in line behind you. mm, If you just had a little nudge, right? You just can't quite bring yourself to do it. See, God understood that's what's going on in Gideon's mind. So notice what he says. If you're afraid to go down, then go down to the camp with your servant Purah, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. See, God is an incredible encourager. God is an incredible encourager. You know what Gideon hears whenever he goes down to the camp? He, he takes God's option on this. He goes down with his servant. And before he ever gets completely into the camp, he's outside there at, at the most exterior boundary. The guards have changed shifts. They're getting ready for the night watch. And here's two of them talking. And the first one tells the second one. He said, you're never going to believe this dream that I had. It's the craziest thing. He said, I dreamed that a barley bun came rolling down the hill and hit our tent here in the valley and not only upended the tent, but completely flipped it over. I mean, just laid waste to it. A barley bun, an old crusty bagel came rolling down the hill and took out their tent. So the second guy looks at the first guy. This is the even stranger part. I mean, that's not a strange enough dream. I don't know what is. But the second guy looks at the first guy and he says, Well, the barley bun be no other than Gideon, the sword of his army. God has delivered us into their hands and he's going to completely lay waste to us. Now, is that the interpretation you would have gotten about a crusty bagel in a tent? I would have thought you were hungry and you've been camping too long, right? But Gideon hears exactly what he needs to hear. God gives the perfect dream and the perfect interpretation to the perfect two guys at the perfect place and the perfect time. 
for Gideon to hear and be encouraged in just the way that he needs to be. It's that little push as he's there at the edge of the hideout. God knew he needed just a little, just a little more. And so God's fomenting this faith, right? And he does that because God is good. God is good. He knows us and he knows what we need. And he wants us to be ready and he wants us to be prepared to go and do the things that he's called us to do. He wants our faith to be at that place where it is ready to get into action. So God desires our success. If we define success of advancement of the kingdom and being obedient to his will. Because when we succeed, the kingdom advances. So God desires our success. And and see, God knows our hearts. And that that includes our want-tos and our not-quites, right? He knows when we're ready, and he knows that little nudge that we need. He knows when to have that person give us that little word of encouragement. He knows whenever Rosemary needs to send us that card in the mail. He knows whenever somebody needs to pick up the phone and, and call. He knows whenever somebody needs to shake your hand with that little... $20 bill in there sometimes on Sunday. He he knows whenever somebody needs to come along and offer you help on your car when you're sitting out in the parking lot and you need a jump. He He knows those little times, those little things of encouragement that we need from time to time. And just when we need them. Because he's fomenting in us, not just a functional faith, but he's fomenting in us this faith that's ready to fight. And notice what happens. As soon as Gideon hears the telling of the dream, he worships. He doesn't even make it back to camp. This is the quietest worship service you've ever seen recorded in all of Scripture. Because he's there in the enemy camp. But he can't contain himself any longer. He has to worship right there. This is exactly what happens in Joshua chapter 5. Whenever Joshua's on the eve of taking the city of Jericho, and he's walking around the walls of the city, checking some things out, just last minute he can't sleep, he's going through, he's looking at it, and who does he encounter but the Lord? Dressed in battle array. And what does Joshua do? He falls down and he worships. Warren Wiersbe said, we can never be a successful warrior until we're a sincere worshiper. You have to get it. You have to know who it is that you're fighting for. You have to know who it is that you're following in the battle. And when you fully understand that, you fully understand who he is and the power that he has, you can't help but worship And when you've reached that point, when you've reached that realization, when your faith is there and at that point, then you can successfully wage the war that he's given you to wage. And notice, that's where we see his fighting faith. It's not just functional. It's ready to go into battle. It's not just there for the day-to-day. It's ready to wage war in the enemy's territory and do the things that God has told him to do and accomplish the victory that God has promised him. So notice what, notice what Gideon does. It says he returns to the camp of Israel and says, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And you know how this works out, right? It's the most ridiculous, the craziest battle plan ever conceived other than sending the band to the front, right? But he says, notice what he tells the men. This is the guy who was hiding when we first met him in a wine press threshing wheat to now look at what he's saying. Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. This is a guy who isn't hiding anymore. He's saying, all eyes on me. I'm about to lead you to do the most illogical, crazy thing you can imagine. But it's going to work. Follow me. Okay? This, this, is, this is what you're waiting to hear like right before the redneck visit to the ER, right? Y'all watch this. That's, that's what he's telling them. 
But it's going to work. It's going to work this time, guys. It's going to work. He is so confident. And notice that this fighting faith has confidence. It's confidence in the promise maker. There is no doubt in his mind now that God is going to deliver exactly the way he said he was going to deliver. There's no doubt in his mind. There's confidence in God's work in him. He's telling the guys, look, just like Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. It's not an arrogant thing. It's just Gideon is at the place where he understands he has sold out everything to God. He's got nothing to lose, and there is no doubt in his mind that God is going to accomplish in him what he set out to accomplish. So he says, you know what, guys? Follow me. It's not by my might, it's not by my power, but it's by God working through me and in me, both to will and to do according to his purpose. He says, look at me and do what I do. He's got confidence in God's work in him. He's also got confidence in the plan. Do you realize what the plan was? These 300 guys are going to break up into three companies and get on the edges of the valley. They've each got a torch in a pot and a trumpet. And when Joshua gives the signal, they're going to blow the trumpet, they're going to smash the pot to reveal the light of the torch, and they're all going to yell out this same battle cry. And then that's it. That's the whole plan. That's the whole plan. And Joshua is com- or, sorry, Gideon is completely confident that it's going to work. Completely confident. And this confidence is a contagion. It begins to spread in these 300 men. And they're willing to stake their lives and put their faith in this plan and this promise maker. And they're ready to go. The craziest thing they've ever heard of, but they're ready to go. And so they go and they execute the plan. And what ends up happening? Well, there's a fantastic finish. When these 300 guys do exactly as they see Josh, or as Gideon do, all of a sudden these Midianites who are asleep in the middle of the night wake up groggy-eyed in their PJs, discombobulated. They don't know where they are. They're waking up in the wrong town in a hotel room somewhere right next to a camel. And all of a sudden they hear 300 trumpets hear 300 war cries, and see these 300 torches. And in their minds, they're thinking there are hundreds, if not thousands, of soldiers that go with every single one of these trumpets. So if there's 300 trumpets, how many soldiers are out there? And they think they've already descended on us in the middle of the night. So they come out of their tent, grasping at their belt, grasping at their cloaks and their robes, trying to find their sword, getting it out of there. Somebody's running this way with a sword. He must be the enemy. So he goes after him. And it says God throws them into a chaos... And causes them to turn every man on themselves. So they start hacking each other down. And the ones who survive the initial melee take off and run. And these 32,000 men that Gideon had sent home come out to pursue. And then even another tribe, their brother tribe, the tribe of Ephraim, comes down from the hills and they cut off these fleeing Midianites at the Jordan River so they can't cross back over into their homeland. They have a huge, huge victory. This fantastic finish. Only it's not the end. I wish that it were, but it's not the end. See, after the battle and after this victory, there's some fanatical followers. God delivers Israel this great victory, and look at Israel's response. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. 
They're ready not only to make Gideon king, but they're ready to promise that all the way down through his grandchildren. Because Gideon gave them the victory. They still don't get it. They still don't get it. Their faith is still forsaken. So look at Gideon's response. I'd like to say this was genuine, but this is feigned faithfulness. Gideon says to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now that sounds great. That sounds like the right thing to say. But look at how Gideon follows through on this. Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. And they answer, we will give Certainly give them. And they spread out a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil, and the weight of the golden earrings that he collected was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's about 40 pounds of golden earrings. And besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. And then it goes on a little later to tell us that Gideon had 70 sons, for he had many wives and a concubine in Shechem, which was Canaanite territory, where we think of the Philistines being a little bit later on, who had a son and called his name Abimelech. Abimelech was a name that was carried on by the Philistines, by the way, that was a royal title that was given to the sons of kings that most likely meant my father is the king. Gideon says, no, I won't rule over you. God will be your king and rule over you. But help me establish a treasury, a harem. I want to have concubines of foreign women to keep foreign allies. And I'm going to give my son a name that means I am king. But no, I won't rule over you. I won't be your king. God will rule over you. See, Gideon feigned this faithfulness to God. Gideon feigned this whole persona in front of the people trying to keep up appearances and it led to a faulty faith led to a faulty faith notice what Gideon does out of good intentions perhaps Gideon made an ephod of these golden earrings that 40 pounds of gold this was a breastplate that was worn traditionally by the priest in the old testament in which were the Urim and Thummim they would use this to Determine God's will in different situations and God's will for the nation. They would ask of God and God would use these somehow to answer and give the priest an answer for national problems and national questions. But it says Gideon made one out of gold and he set it up in his hometown. But notice the tragedy that comes along with it. And all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So Gideon may have had good intentions. Gideon may have wanted to keep seeking God's will and God's judgment on things. Gideon may have wanted to have been a good ruler. But Gideon let his fame and his fortune go to his head. Gideon was influenced toward a faulty faith because he lost focus. He lost focus on who it was that he was following. He lost who it was that gave him the victory. He lost who it was that had changed his life and brought him so far on this faith journey. And while he had good intentions, good intentions and partial obedience get us right back to where we started before. Because you see, he was paying lip service to God. The, the children of Israel were coming to worship Yahweh there by worshiping the ephod. 
when they weren't really worshiping God at all. They were worshiping this image, this item, this thing. And it became the focus of their worship. And because of Gideon's faulty faith, we find Gideon passing away. And it says, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and prostituted themselves by worshiping the Baals. If they could worship an image and an article, why couldn't they just worship a false god, an idol? God had brought Gideon so far, but because of his faulty faith, he passed along this forsaken faith that we saw in the beginning to the next generation. Because Gideon was serving and worshiping God in the end by name only. He didn't really need God anymore. He had treasure. He had a harem. He had plenty of sons. He had plenty of servants. He had plenty of livestock. He had 40 years of peace in the kingdom where they weren't bothered by outside enemies anymore. He had the adoration of people. What did he need God for? Andrew Boner says this, We must be watchful, as watchful after the victory as before the battle. How many of us have seen God grow us in this faith journey? We've seen our faith evolve to the point where not only was it functional, but there was a time when we were on fire for God. We had this fighting faith where God would say, go and we go. Where God would say, I've got a crazy idea, and you'd say, I'm up for it. Only to sit back and bask in the glory of what was accomplished by that crazy idea. And never really do another thing for the kingdom. Never really see God ever work in our lives again. It's kind of like sitting back and telling our grandchildren about our glory days in 1A high school football and all the allocades and all the fame that we had in our small town. And they're looking around and saying, wow, Grandpa, that's great, but where's that gotten you now? Where is your faith? Where are you on your journey? Are you not even in a relationship with God because you've got this forsaken faith? You know you've heard, you've sung it, you've been there, you've listened, you've colored the pictures, you've seen the flannel graph, you've gone with Grandma to VBS in Sunday school, your parents were great believers, Dad was even a deacon, but you know what? In your life, it's never mattered. And you've got this forsaken faith Yeah, the pieces are there and the seeds were planted, but you know what? You've never done anything with it. And as much as you know about God, you're far from God. He has no impact on your life. Maybe today's the day whenever you need to find that faith. You need to let God ferment that faith again into something that's alive and real and active and personal. Or maybe you got to that point and you've just not ever really grown. Maybe you find yourself with some kind of fearful faith or a fractured faith where you're not really sure if God can do exactly what he says he's going to do. You want to trust him, but it doesn't seem right. There's some questions. You've got too high a view of the enemy. You've got too much experience with the power he's had in your life and not enough with what God can do. Maybe you need to come today and ask from a God who says he'll give liberally. Or maybe... You've got a faulty faith. Maybe you were that person who, you know what, there was a time in your life when you were absolutely on fire for God. 
You were fighting for the kingdom. You were advancing. You were seeing God do amazing things. But you know what? That was 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years ago. And you kind of wonder now, what is God doing in your life and what could he do with you? You've got this faulty faith where you worship God in name only. You show up. You talk about the glory days. You remember all the things that he used to do. But you know what? Talking about what he used to do doesn't tell this generation what he can do and what he's still doing. And that's what they need. Maybe you need to come and do business with God and say, God, just rekindle in me that passion and that fire that was there. I know what it was like to be on the front lines. I know what it was like to see your victory. And God, I want that again in my life. And let him begin to do the things that he needs to do to fix your focus to put your faith to the test and foment it back to that point where it is ready to go into battle again. God, thank you for today and just a chance to get into your word.